Uh, and actually, as I said, my church wasn't perfect and no church I have ever been to has been perfect. After all, I'm part of it, so it can't be. But but there is enough there, you know, uh, and I think I tried to hang on to the kindness and to the love that I've experienced. And, you know, when people have said something stupid or when it's not been helpful, I, I try as a conscious Christian practice to let go of that and just remember that God has met me actually through people in the church um, and that that really matters. The Profile with Premier Christianity magazine. Hello, you're listening to Premier Christian Radio. I'm Sam Hales, editor of Premier Christianity magazine. You've joined us for the show where we sit down with a different Christian leader every week and find out something of their life, faith and ministry. And I'm pleased to say my guest on the show this week is Dr. Isabel Hamley. She is theological advisor to the House of Bishops and was formerly chaplain to the Archbishop of Canterbury, Justin Welby. Isabel has written a number of recognised books on questions of justice, mercy and restoration. She was previously a probation officer before ordination and ministered subsequently amidst the diversity of parish life. Her latest book is entitled Struggling with God, Mental Health and Christian Spirituality. It's co-written with Christopher C.H. Cook and John Swinton. And John Swinton, incidentally, is a previous guest on this show. So do check out the profile as a podcast and scroll back a few weeks to hear our conversation with John. But for now, Dr. Isabel, welcome to the show. Good afternoon and thank you for having me. I mentioned you're previously chaplain to the Archbishop of Canterbury, Justin Welby, and looking at this this new book of yours on the subject of mental health, I was reminded that the Archbishop recently uh, likened himself to that Winnie the Pooh character, Eeyore. (laughs) Um, And Justin Welby's been very open about his own struggles with depression. Do you think that openness has been helpful for other Christians in realising they're not alone and even senior church leaders can have some of these struggles? Yes, I think there's something absolutely crucial in being able to talk about mental health from the front and and not make a big deal of it, of saying, actually, you know, all of us at some point are likely to struggle with our mental health or to know somebody close to us who does. And and there is something really important about normalising that um, and also about modelling, being able to live with mental health challenges and and still living, as it were, Uh, you know, and saying it doesn't take you away from from life. I mean, sometimes it can for a little while, but but people are all around us actually in at work, at home, at play, in in the places we go to, in cafes who struggle. And it's important for for people like Justin to be able to to talk about that. And just because you struggle with something, it doesn't make you any any less of a of a Christian. In fact, even the title of this book is called Struggling with God. And we've yeah. got biblical examples, I think, of Jacob wrestling with God. Tell, tell me more about this title, Struggling with God, and, and what it means. I think some of that is partly to try and address kind of a common misconception that somehow, you know, if you're struggling, you should just pray and everything should be all right. And of course, we all know that that's not how life works. And and I think as a church, we've learned that that doesn't work if we talk about physical healing. But in some places, we're still quite glib about mental health. And we still kind of sometimes imagine that, you know, Jesus can be the answer to everything. And, and actually, we wanted to recover the sense of a biblical spirituality of struggle. 
that actually faith, particularly faith in scripture and in the Old Testament, is not an easy thing. And that faith happens in the midst of struggle, in the midst of struggles of life. And that the people of the Old Testament certainly kind of struggled with God because they asked, where is God and what's happening? And I think if you're struggling with your mental health, that can often be your experience to think, well, where is God or where was God when something happened to me, like a traumatic experience? Um, and we we want to recover that language, that biblical language of lament, of of struggling and saying, actually, that's a valid and valued part of the life of faith. It's not a bad thing. It's something that we need as part of a healthy spirituality. And what have been the areas in, in your life personally where you've had those struggles or, or wrestles because of things that have happened to you or, or problems that you've had? So I struggled with my mental health for quite a while, particularly as a teenager, I grew up in a difficult environment where I was a child carer and in quite an abusive family. And as an adult now, I know that I've been diagnosed with PTSD and, and I've had you know, periods of depression. As a teenager, I developed anorexia um, and really, really struggled for years. And I'm just in the middle of that, you know, at the really dark times, I was saying, I got no idea where God is. Uh, why isn't God answering my prayers? Why didn't God answer my prayers when I was a young child in a really difficult situation? You know, it's those questions. And, and that didn't mean I didn't have faith. I think I still, I know it's not the case for everybody, but I still always believed that God was there. But I think for me, there was questions about, you know, who is God? What does it mean that God loves us if God doesn't act when God has the capacity to act? You know, it's the age-old questions. Where is God when it hurts? Um, but it's also questions of, well, what does faith mean? What does prayer mean? What is it for in those situations? Um, and, and times as well, kind of, you know, different kinds of time in life where actually it's just too hard to pray. You know, it's the kind of, Romans 8 type of prayer, you know, the groans of the spirit within us where you just think, actually, I'm too tired to even pray. I don't have the energy to do that because it's just too hard. So had you been raised in a in a Christian family that meant by the time you were a teenager, you said struggling with anorexia, but you were, you were doing that, I guess, as a Christian teenager? Uh, no, my family was as secular as you can get it, you know, the old kind of stereotypes of the French secular. I was going to say, there's a stereotype there family. with France and secularism. Yeah, no, totally. God was banned in our house, but I I found childhood really hard. And one of my ways of coping was to pray. And, and in many ways, I didn't know who I was praying to because I had no religious background whatsoever. I mean, I didn't even hear the Christian story of Christmas until I was a teenager, you know, it just it just wasn't part of, of what we did, but I prayed. And then when I went to secondary school, um, my best friend, the girl who became my best friend, her dad had planted a little church um, in the street next to ours. And so um, her dad kind of told me to give me a Bible. We talked a little bit about faith. She invited me to church. And it felt like a little bit of a coming home, you know, of recognizing the God I had been praying to. Um, and and actually being welcomed and loved by the church. I think I was a pretty kind of messed up teenager in many ways, but the church loved me. It wasn't a perfect church by any stretch of the imagination, but they took me in, they gave me meals, they chatted to me, they held my hand when I cried, and they just accepted me as I was. Um, and I found, I found love that I hadn't experienced elsewhere. 
Uh, and so I think I was, you know, I met God, but I also met the people of God. And for me, the two things were absolutely essentially linked. I think if I hadn't met a church that had loved me, I'm not sure that my walk with God would have gone in the direction it did. Absolutely. And it puts that that emphasis and that challenge on all of us as Christians to to be the hands and feet of Jesus and to yeah. practically model to the world what it means to have a faith and not just believe the right things, but act in a way that that speaks to our saviors. I mean, that's very encouraging to hear that it was such a positive church mm. experience. I have to be honest, not everyone who comes on this show has such a, a positive experience of church. As as we all know, there are so many challenges, but mm. I suppose it's encouraging to know there are plenty of those kinds of yeah. communities uh, across the world where people are seeking to, to show that openness and, and love. There are, and I think, you know, particularly today and particularly in the area of social media, I think we tend to focus on the negatives a lot. Uh, and actually, as I said, my church wasn't perfect and no church I have ever been to has been perfect. After all, I'm part of it, so it can't be. But but there is enough there, you know. Uh, and I think I tried to hang on to the kindness and to the love that I've experienced. And, you know, when people have said something stupid or when it's not been helpful, I, I try as a conscious Christian practice to let go of that and just remember that God has met me actually through people in the church um, mm. and that that really matters. And tell me where the call to ordination came in, because you had a created other, other things before becoming ordained. So presumably yeah. it wasn't an immediate thing of I've become a Christian as a teenager and I want to go into full-time ministry. <laughs> well, I think I felt an initial sense of a calling to full-time Christian ministry when I was only just 16, but the church I attended didn't have women leaders. So I was like, it's, what do I do with that? You know, I had no idea what to do with it. So I parked it. Um, and then I moved to England. I uh, I got a European scholarship to do a master's in Nottingham. And then I stayed for another year to teach and then met my husband and the rest is history. And I think I carried on feeling a sense of calling to Christian ministry. I went to Bible college for a couple of years to explore that. Um, and when I was at Bible college, I, I, you know, I read theology. I really got more into the Old Testament and got really interested in questions around justice and um, yeah, God's action in the world. And I started working for a Christian charity after that. But and, and I think I sensed that continuing call to Christian ministry and possibly ordination in a church of England. But I didn't want to have only ever worked in, in Christian circles. So I felt it was really important for me to kind of test out my Christian theology, my faith, and the things that I was starting to think about, particularly in terms of justice in the kind of grittiness of the real world. And I think that's why I trained as a probation officer, um, because I wanted to be able to work in, in that kind of context before even thinking about ministry. So, so tell me more about how that theology was tested in that environment. Mm. Did you have certain experiences that confirmed what you believe about God and justice and people and right and wrong? And did you have other experiences that uh, perhaps led you to rethink? It, it was fascinating. And in some ways, it might have been more of a challenge to my political beliefs than to my, to my oh, really? theology. <laughs> there was something about being a very, you know, I mean, another stereotype of the French is being quite left wing. I'd grown up in a very, very left wing family. And I, I would say I'm still on the left of the political spectrum. But, but I think I went into probation with 
that sense that people were largely victims, victims of circumstances, and that, you know, what they needed was, you know, somebody to help them, they needed education, employment, housing, whatever. And that's not incorrect entirely. But I think what I found as a probation officer is that I felt that we needed to make more space for free will, actually, an agency um, than maybe I had made before. And actually, that's consonant with the Christian theology, because Christian theology tells us that, you know, we're an entire person. And as a person, we are affected by your circumstances, but we also have choices. And I think a lot of a lot of the kind of theological and intellectual work I did being a probation officer was trying to work out how do we kind of faced with a person whose life has largely fallen apart, who might have done some really terrible things. How do we give a fair, just and generous account of who they are for the courts or, you know, how to write reports for the courts? A kind of account that says we take seriously the way in which the whole of society has a responsibility for that person. We take seriously the fact that they've been hurt and broken, but we also take seriously the fact that they do make choices uh, and that lots of people with similar experiences have made better choices, actually, than, than they have. And, and I think finding finding that balance was really difficult. And the, the other thing that really came home to me, which I think probably reinforced some of what I instinctively thought, but was the sense that if people haven't been loved, you have very little foundation to build on. So, you know, it's all very well to try and get somebody to engage with education or um, mental health treatment or whatever it is they need. But actually, if, they, if they've never been loved, if they don't know that they're worth something, if they can't trust that somebody can possibly have their best interest at heart, it's really hard to get anywhere. I had a, I worked with a young man who's just stayed as a, an example in my head, but who, uh, I started working with him when he was on an order for, I don't know, possession of firearms or something like that. And it was just so obvious that he didn't believe anybody loved him, that anybody had his best interest at heart. And therefore, he had fallen in with a gang because that was a way of belonging. But he didn't believe people in the gang loved him. You know, it was very much a self-protection thing. And he believed he had to carry a firearm and a weapon to defend himself. And you could see that that was going to end badly. And, and it did. And he was, you know, he committed murder and is in prison now for the rest of his life. But it was just really just something that was absolutely heartbreaking, just watching this person. and. I'm thinking, you, you know, I just want to give you a hug, but I can't. <laughs> but actually trying to convince him that it was possible that that somebody else could care about him. Yeah. And I think that's where churches have a job to do. And presumably there's lo lots of things you can't do in that situation. You say you can't, you can't give him a hug. Presumably you're quite limited even in sharing your faith with someone like that. Yeah, you are. Um, you can allow somebody to talk about this, but you can't share your own faith because that would be against the code of practice. But, but to a degree, you know, that's where, uh, you know, the apocryphal story 
comes of um, to visit St. Francis, you know, preach the gospel, use, wor use words if you absolutely have to. I mean, many people think he never said that, but, but that still is a solid principle that actually you can, you can embody something even if you can't put words to go with it. So do you remember a moment during working as a probation officer where you thought, okay, done this now's now's the time to to move on is, is that how it happened how, how did you end up going into uh ordained ministry um so i moved out of the probation service partly i mean out of personal struggles really i um uh, i did a lot of child protection work and safeguarding because that's the bread and butter <laughs> of probation work by the time we were trying to start a family and that was really really difficult and i think there came a point where i just find it really really difficult to to work with people who were treating children badly, either voluntarily or out of neglect or whatever, whilst it was so difficult for us to have a child. So I decided to take a break um, whilst, you know, whilst we saw what, what happened with us. And then, I, you know, we were very fortunate and blessed and we had a, we had a child of our own. And, and after that, when I looked at, you know, what do I want to do? Do I want to go back into the probation service? There's a part of me that feels like I'm not sure that emotionally I can do that kind of work again, just because having my own child, and I, it's not the same for everybody, but having my own has made me so much more sensitive to, to the way in which we we care for children. And so so I, you know, I looked for a job going back, coming back from maternity leave and uh, became a lay chaplain at the University of Leicester. And uh, very quickly, within a few months, the Bishop of Leicester was on my case, telling me I should be ordained. <laughs> and he put so much pressure that I caved in. He caved in. And what was that process like? People have different experiences of, of that training process. Now, I've mentioned, obviously, you've, you've done a lot of academic work. I, yeah. I imagine the kind of theological side of training was probably something you enjoyed. Yeah, it was fine. Um, I mean, I had a very young child at the time, so it was quite... You know, I don't think the I don't think the training process was designed for people with, you know, particularly women with young children in mind. Um, but that was all right. I think I for me, what was hard was getting my head round to being in the Church of England, actually, because that wasn't, you know, France doesn't have the Church of England. It does have chaplaincies, but certainly not where I grew up. So so there was a sense of thinking, well, I know I am called to some form of ministry. Has God called me to this specific place? And if he has, why on earth <laughs> called a French woman into the Church of England? You know, it's a big question. And do I really want to swear allegiance to the Queen? That was just that was a big thing for me, being a French Republican, you know. Um Yeah, how did you how did you get around that one? Well, um, with great difficulty is the answer. <laughs> um I, I think some of that was just understanding what the what the oath is about and, and saying actually I can swear allegiance in all things lawful. And that that that, that I can cope with, but but there is there is scope for conscience and integrity yes. with that. In all in all seriousness, the, the, the question of why the Church of England I think is a is a very, very valid one. I mean that there's a huge distinction, isn't there, between some kind of full-time, even ordained ministry as opposed to specifically the Church of England. Yeah. And certainly lots of people have their own view, even prejudices, hang-ups about all sorts of dominations, the oh. Church of England included. But what were, I guess, what were the reasons for you 
or the, the doubts for you as to you know why why God why the C of E and and conversely what were the things that were actually drawing you towards that church, that kind of institution that denomination as as being a, the right fit for you of where God specifically wanted you. So initially, I come from a very low church background, you know, because that's that simply is the type of church I became a Christian in, and that's an accident of history. So already there was kind of a getting to know the Church of England was quite difficult initially. So I went to a church in Nottingham, which was so low, it was subterranean, really. We went to um, to the evening service, and it was indistinguishable from the kind of Baptist church I went to in France. And and my my first encounter with the fact that the Church of England was a broad church was actually on my wedding day, where uh, in our church at our evening service, which was the student service, I had never seen anybody wearing robes. And then on my wedding day, our vicar arrived wearing a cassock and surplice. And there's a picture of me looking absolutely horrified. And Uh and I think what I said was, I'm the bride, I'm supposed to wear the white dress. Uh You know, Uh And, and and that was funny, but but it's something that I then kind of consciously explored. And I, I've gained a lot, I think, from broadening my spirituality um, as we struggled in our journey towards parenthood. You know, initially, all our friends moved from the got married, moved from the evening, really low church service to the morning service, which was quieter and was slightly had a bit more liturgy and whatever and had children's work and we moved alongside them because we wanted to stay with our friends um and then as we were struggling to conceive it became too painful actually to be at a service full of children crawling all over the floor so so we started going to the nine o'clock service the early morning sacramental liturgical service which wasn't wasn't us we thought but for me, at a time when actually everything was difficult, I find that having the words of liturgy there was a way of praying where I didn't have to manufacture anything. I could just rest in the prayers of the church. So it was a way that the church carried me. And I think that was probably a turning point for me at which I thought, actually, there is something within the Church of England and the way in which we use liturgy that has something, particularly in what was probably, a, you know, some form of mental health crisis for me that really helped me. But the other thing was, how extraordinary was it that I could make that journey within the one church, you know, not just the Church of England, but my local church had three services and they weren't completely distinct. So the people who came to the 9am often were also at the evening service because they cooked for the students and made them welcome. And I just thought there is something really deeply attractive to me about a church that can hold that breadth and enable mm. people to, to grow within it. Uh, and I think the, the other thing was, you know, I said I'd gone to Bible college. I went to London Bible College. It's now London School of Theology um, initially. And a lot of the people I trained with went into ministry in more congregational churches and actually in a congregational church, when something goes wrong, you're on your own. You know, when there, there is something that's very vulnerable about ministry in, in those churches. Um, and, and there is something in the Church of England that links congregations together that says, actually, the church is always more than just local congregation. We belong together. And for me, again, kind of theologically, that's something that I've really grown into, that sense of belonging together, not just being little congregations. That breadth, as you say, of the Church of England is incredibly 
attractive to be able to have such diversity of Christian expression within one church. I, I suppose that the kind of criticism of it is is has been more on the theological level, and we've seen this in particular around the debates, even in recent days at the time of recording, we've had General Synod and issues like sexuality that seem to, at least if you read the mainstream news agenda, seem to constantly dominate the C of E and, and the criticism being that how can one church hold such wild, wildly different theological perspectives within the same church? And, um, you know, is it really possible to do that? And is that part of the reason why that particular debate has run on for so long is it's really hard to come to agreement on arguably some pretty important topics and again yourself as as a theologian what's your view on that that actually there is a weakness here within within the c of e um that is how how do you hold wildly different ideas not just on that issue but on on other uh, theological hot potatoes how can you hold that in the same church is that really possible long term well, I mean, you could consider that it's a weakness to try and hold the breath of people together, or you could consider that it's a strength because it's trying to fulfill the command of Jesus to love one another and to be one. And I, I think it's a paradox rather than either a strength or a weakness. And I, I think it's one that all churches have to faith, face. I, I don't think it's unique to the Church of England, but I think the weakness is on different parts of the spectrum, depending on what your church is. So if you're in a more congregational context, you're not necessarily trying to hold that breadth. But I think the risk is to fragment yourself away from other churches really easily and not seek to be one with brothers and sisters. And I think that's a weakness as well. So so I'm not, you know, I don't think there's an answer to that conundrum. And I think the early church struggled with that already. You see that from the letters of Paul. I think it has always been part of the formation of holiness within Christian communities that we struggle between different human opinions on the call to be one and and we struggle to balance kind of, you know, almost I don't want to say truth, but kind of theological and ethical principles together with the call to walk together. Yes, I suppose the, the paradox or the balance is between, as you say, unity or, you know, some people have called it unity and truth. The criticism being that, of course, unity is important, but but can unity really trump truth, I suppose? Because um, that would be the criticism where the Church of England is, is heading with a lot of this, is we have to stay together at all costs. And the argument would be, but surely there are some doctrinal matters where, you know, it, it is right or wrong, and we can't continue to walk together if we can't agree on this central issue. Is, is, that, is that the problem yeah. that the holding holding both those two things in tension, not letting one outweigh the other? I think it is one of the tensions, but I don't want to be drawn into the the nub of the argument of sexuality and the Church of England. <laughs> Very few people do. Why do you think that is? For me, I want to be faithful to a process of discernment um, and not risk saying anything that damages that. But also, it's very difficult to discuss this as a purely intellectual issue. This is about people, people on all sides. I'm not, you know, um, and I am concerned about arguments that, you know, that remain purely at the theoretical level and that don't look at the consequences of our words and actions um, and that don't have enough people around the table. I think I'm acutely aware that I'm only one person as well um, and that whatever I think 
um, it is provisional and limited, and that therefore um, I need my brothers and sisters from lots of different parts of the world, lots of different parts of history, and lots of different parts of the church in order to have a rounded, proper conversation. Too many of us are living in a bubble and not hearing both sides of the world's important stories. It's time for a more rounded perspective. It's time to discover Premier Christianity. Balanced, confident, relevant, faith-filled. Discover fresh biblical perspectives as we bring you wide-ranging stories that impact the church. Discover the go-to source for Christian news. Subscribe at premierchristianity.com. Now only five pounds for three months. Mentioned already um, your background, obviously growing up in France, and uh, the, I think the word you used a few times was was stereotypes. But um, I wanted to ask you because you're you're a dual citizen now, aren't you, of of the yeah. UK and France? And I understand that was something you applied for. I think specifically after Brexit. So I wanted to ask how that vote affected you personally i mean you've just mentioned perhaps not wanting to be drawn on issues of sexuality because it involves real people and 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 i suppose there's a sense in that with brexit is actually it's not just some political disagreement it affects real people's lives as for yourself as a french person living in the uk was that was that a difficult moment in the aftermath of that vote it was it was really difficult i mean and it was difficult because i lived in a parish that where the majority of people voted for brexit and you just go what do i do with that you've got a french vicar you know and of course, people we say, oh, but we don't mean you, dear. But I felt profoundly unwelcome, actually. Um, I mean, my child was bullied at school for being half French and told, you know, you can't cheer for a sports team because you're not properly British and things like that. Um, and, and was that was that sort of specifically around the time of the vote? I mean, yes. were those two things connected? Right? Yes. Yeah, yeah. It, was the, it was the lead up to the Brexit vote. Um, I think what I've I tried to do, so it was difficult for me personally, but I've also tried to kind of think, okay, what's the thing under the thing? Because I don't want to fall into stereotypes of thinking, you know, good people vote against Brexit and, you know, racist people vote for Brexit, because I don't think that helps anybody. And I don't actually think it's true. So I try to make space and time to listen to why it was that people voted for Brexit and not reduce them to caricatures. And I think some of what I hear is there is some, you know, old fashioned xenophobia and, you know, the kind of romanticization of empire. But together with that, there's kind of fear and grief at the loss of local community. There's a sense of rootlessness and drifting in the modern world that's, you know, in some ways a global world, but actually for a lot of people locally, they feel left behind by that global world. They feel that, you know, they're not actually benefiting from it. And there's something theologically about rootedness and being embodied as human beings that we're not we're not global as human beings. We're actually particular. We're rooted. We belong to a time and a space. Um, and I think there's something almost paradoxical in being a Christian, in, in being called to care for the whole church, care for the entire world, but being profoundly embedded as a Christian witness where we are. Um, and so I've done some thinking around that. And I think that's helped me kind of make sense of some of the Brexit stuff with as much grace as I can muster. Mm. I think that's amazing that, that despite very 
very tough personal circumstances around that time, even in the answer to that question, you're immediately thinking, well, but what, what were the reasons why people would think differently to me? And that kind of empathy towards seeking mm-hmm. empathy with those who might fundamentally disagree with you, it strikes me as a, a vital skill in life, but particularly in chaplaincy, which is, of course, an area you've done a lot of work in that, that ability to empathise with those who, who are different and see life from someone else's perspective. Is that just a just a God-given gift that you've always had? Is that something you've learned to develop o- over time? And and what would be your advice to someone who's seeking to grow in that, that skill of empathy? I think it's probably a little bit of both. So I think I'm just... Intellectually, I'm always trying to see things from every angle I possibly can. And that's just a natural kind of curiosity thing. But it's also something that I practice kind of consciously, trying to trying to listen to different perspectives. Um, I uh, When I sense a call to ordination, I went on retreat. Um, something that's really stayed with me is the retreat leader was kind of encouraging people to kind of read scripture. I can't even remember what the passage was, but to to do that thing of, you know, are you landing on the word? Is there a word that you feel that God is saying? And the word that came to me was grace. Um, And I've journeyed with that word. And I, I really feel really strongly that that's part of God's call for me, that there is something about the ability to be gracious in all situations that that kind of, you know, I fail far more often than I succeed, but that that's part of my specific calling under God. And so I try and, and make space to listen, and I try to hold on to things lightly, if you know what I mean. Um, and, and some of that has been developed kind of gradually as well. So working with Archbishop Justin, one of the things I've really, really appreciated with working with, working with the Archbishop is when I arrived, we had a staff team, with a senior staff team is about 10 or 11 people, and we were all incredibly different. You know, we had different spiritualities, different church traditions, different views, different political views, different life experiences. And there was such a richness to working well with a diverse team just made you realize that, I mean, you need that if you're the Archbishop of Canterbury, because actually you need to stress test kind of ideas, speeches and everything. But but I felt that that was really a, a good model for Christian ministry, actually, to consciously surround yourself with people who think differently in lots of different ways so that you have that, you develop that sense of a 360 kind of view. Well, that brings me on to, to a, I think, related subject, which is your work in ecumenical relations. Um, probably worth just spelling out exactly what that means for those who might be unfamiliar, perhaps even with that term, but also your role within that world. So that's about relation between churches, you know, basically between different denominations um, and looking at how we relate with one another. Um, I had a slightly bigger role. I had a slightly lesser role now, but... Um, But that's about saying, okay, how do we work well with other churches? Um, How do we listen to one another and see what other churches might have to teach us? What are the areas of life where we want to work together on various things? So, you know, there's a number of, of areas where there's been really fruitful missional collaboration between churches, particularly on kind of social justice issues, but not solely on that. Um, And some of it is theological as well, kind of talking about the things that separate us. 
And, and there's something quite interesting when you talk to people who are, you know, other Christians, but see things slightly differently, it helps you articulate who you are a little better. Um, because you you suddenly start thinking, actually, what really matters to me and what doesn't matter so much? And why does it matter? And so there's something about that within our within our dialogue. So one of the one of the things I have a particular responsibility for is working with French Protestant churches. So there's a federation of French Protestant churches. And that's been a really interesting conversation about um, how we can work together more closely. And there's a couple of church projects actually where we've got joint staff at the moment. Uh, and it's looking at, you know, often when churches start working together on the ground, they want to work more together. That's that's usually the case because you realize how much you have in common. But the more time you spend together, the more you realize that some of the underlying differences can then become, become a bit of an issue. And then you need to do some of the work to kind of look at, you know, why we have these differences and whether they can be overcome. It strikes me that in the past, there was perhaps a little bit more reluctance to work with other churches. And I think some of that might have been, well, why? Why do I need to as a church leader? And, and it strikes me that as perhaps even mission evangelism has become more and more difficult, arguably, in recent years. Um, and as congregation sizes have got smaller, it, it strikes me there's been more of a need um, yeah. to actually have to work together to, in order to get certain things off the ground. Do, do you agree with that? Have you seen that, that there's, there's, there's a kind of practical reason for working with other churches that, that wasn't there a few years ago? Yeah, I think that's that's definitely true in, in lots of different ways, whether it's in the very local and working practically on the ground together or even at the national level. There are things, why why should we do very similar things separately? So, you know, like the Thy Kingdom Come initiative that the Archbishop started a few years back. Well, that makes a lot more sense working together than just plowing our own furrow in the Church of England. Um, when I was a vicar in Nottingham, we had a fantastic churches together group of ministers where uh, we just got on. It's not, I know it's not like that everywhere, but the ministers in my area, we all got on. Uh, we met together. We prayed together. We did stuff together at Christmas, at Easter. Sometimes we did other projects together. And that was so much more effective. And actually what we found was when people came to us, we could direct them to whichever church kind of would be best for them. There was no sense of competition for numbers, but rather that we wanted to encourage encourage each other and and that was a tremendously positive experience for me and that's kind of given me kind of passion and hope for that kind of task because I think actually in practice can make a huge difference and, and in the area of mental health actually this is an area where we did some work together ecumenically kind of in our in our little patch um, because one church on its own couldn't actually do a huge amount of work but when we club together you could do all kinds of things that you couldn't do on your own. I remember when um, Justin Mulby first became Archbishop of Canterbury, he set out a number of priorities, and one of them was reconciliation, which, you know, I think in theory sounds lovely, doesn't it? I mean, <laughs> it sounds great. Bring everyone together, reconcile. In reality, it must be incredibly hard work and very difficult. I, I imagine you must have some stories of, where you've seen the messiness and struggle in trying to work for reconciliation? I think in Christian terms, people think of reconciliation as kind of heaven. You know, everybody gets on well together and it's all fine and it's the resurrection. But, but actually, you can only get there 
if you've gone through the cross first and and for me that's the that's the point reconciliation you you don't have reconciliation without going through the cross in the first place you don't have reconciliation without addressing messiness without addressing anger and pain and trauma and division and paradoxes and things you can't solve like different stories of what has happened that are utterly irreconcilable and so reconciliation is about sometimes it's about the art of the possible Uh, you know there is something about both working towards an ideal and working with the real world and the world as it is and and kind of somehow not losing the ideal but recognizing you'd only get there if you start walking on that road um and Justin often says that um, when you do work in reconciliation, what you're trying to do is become a bridge. And the problem of bridges is people walk all over them. <laughs> and that, that's the dilemma of reconciliation, that in a sense, to do your job well, nobody's happy with you because mm-hmm. you're able, you know, because you're able to see things from different perspectives. And it doesn't mean the perspectives are equal, equally good or equally bad or equally guilty or, you know, equally innocent. But but there still is a sense of being able to inhabit the different stories that are on all sides. And if you're able to inhabit the story of the other side, the first side usually is a little bit unhappy with you. Yes. Uh, as you just said, in order to do your job well, uh, no one's going to like you. I mean, um Maybe I'm going too far to suggest that's quite a good description of being Archbishop of Canterbury, but um, um, or indeed any church leader, or dare I say, at the editor of a Christian magazine that serves uh, multiple denominations at the same time. There's something about that, isn't it, of, of of kind of being a Christian and wanting to bring people together. You're not going to be liked for doing that. It's it's much easier in some ways, I think, especially in our social media age, to just sort of throw stones at the the other Christians over there who are wrong. <laughs> And it's back to that question about the balance between unity and, and other considerations, isn't it? That trying to tread that balance, trying to keep people together and not endlessly fragment into self-righteous little groups is really difficult. But at the same time, keeping a sense of identity, of boundaries, of belonging is also something we have to do. And, and so balancing that, whether it's at the level of the local church or the national or international church, I think, is inevitably difficult. Um, you know, we we see it in, we see it in scripture. You know, Jesus didn't find it particularly easy, and neither did the apostles. That's <laughs> very true. Uh, well, we've covered so many wonderfully uh, big topics already in this in this conversation. I I, um, I want to come back to mental health before we finish, but before we get there probably one of the biggest questions facing the Church of England, and indeed a lot of churches, is this issue of, of decline. Um, and, and I suppose the kind of million-dollar question is is why. Why is it that the Church of England, and indeed many other denominations, are, are struggling so much? And of course, we know there are individual great stories. You've shared a couple already in our conversation of, of people finding God and finding faith. But but overall, the picture is is quite a negative one. How is it that we are in that moment right now? So I'm not sure I've got any popular answers to give. I think one of my answers would be because the gospel is hard. And actually, if everybody flocked to our churches and thought Christian, you know, and find Christianity easy, I would be really worried about the type of Christianity we're actually peddling. And so to me, there is a sense in which we're moving out of Christendom. We're moving out of a time when 
there was a sense of everybody more or less turning off to church. Um, the, to what extent is debated, but but for me, the the Christian faith is not is not easy. It's demanding. It's hard work. And actually, if we're preaching the gospel, it's both good news and really difficult news. You know, I'm often. Um, I often think of the story of Jesus in the Gospel of John, just after the feeding of the 5,000. It should have been an absolute high. And then it says, you know, lots of disciples and lots of people listening left because the teaching was too hard. I think that happened to Jesus. So should we be surprised if it happens to us? No, I'm not sure that's the reason we're declining. But it, for me, that's the reason that just having, you know, making a good sales pitch for Christianity is never good enough because actually making disciples is always hard work. Um, I think there's the, you know, the movement to post-Christendom makes it harder because you don't have the same kind of level of, level of basic faith. Um, I've read a book recently by Andrew Root, which I thought was really helpful, where he looks at the way in which we've moved from a world where most people assumed a supernatural element to, to reality, where that was people's default kind of worldview, was now today's default worldview is that everything can be explained by science. And that actually the space for God in our imagination is smaller. And that the church hasn't necessarily adapted how it speaks um, in the right way, so that in some ways, we've tried to join in with the kind of marketization of the gospel. Um, and we haven't, you know, we, we've tried to bring people into our churches by making our churches fun and good places and places where we can feel we belong. And all of that is fine. But there's a difference between that and making disciples. And ultimately, it's only making disciples that will enable us to grow. That's really interesting. It, it reminds me of a couple of other stories I've come across recently where people have said they've been attracted to the weirdness of Christianity. And, and I think sometimes we've made the mistake of trying to be really relevant and cool and we're just like you. Uh, and yet what I'm hearing from people is, no, it was, it's the fact that the church is different and you believe some strange things. And uh, I think one, one thinker put it like this. He said, you know, you, you need to talk about angels more and all that weird stuff, because actually if, if you're just going to, appear like anyone else that's not attractive to me i want something different and and people are perhaps attracted to the the strange parts of our faith that sometimes we've been a bit a bit embarrassed of yeah no, totally we need to tell a good alternative story uh, and i think sometimes we haven't and you know the privatization of faith has probably also been a real a real issue because actually christianity is not about me it's about christ and it's about all of us together as the people of god and and it's about the world um, and particularly today, you know, I think our children are concerned about the environment, they're concerned about justice, they're concerned about, you know, the big issues of the world. And and Christians haven't always, you know, I think there's been a bit of a time when we've been less engaged with some of this. Um, and we need to have a an integrated faith, I think, that, that speaks both to the individual and to, to the wider world. As I say, the, the new book uh, is out now. It's called Struggling with God. What are your hopes for this book? What do you hope that people will um, do as a result of it? Or how do you hope it will, will help people or, or change people's thinking? I hope it will 
um, would be an encouragement to people who struggle with their own mental health um, so that they would see that they're seen and that they're loved and you know, and they'd be able to use some of the resources in there. But my, my bigger hope is probably for churches, that churches would be encouraged to talk about mental health openly, to kind of talk about scripture, and to go back into scripture and see what scripture has to say, and to be encouraged to know that they can be good, hospitable places. We, and that's not difficult. It's not it's not about lots of money. It's not about big new projects. It's about being a certain kind of people um, and being the kind of people who talk about the whole of scripture and the whole of life before God. And if we can have a, have a few more communities like the one that you encountered as a teenager that loved and accepted you, that would be a fantastic outcome, wouldn't it? To, to build communities like that where, where everyone's welcome. Yeah, that's the bottom line. You've been listening to The Profile in association with Premier Christianity magazine.